wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab. Hi, everyone. Welcome to A Quirky Journey. This is Joe Witten, and I'm here on my own today for the intro. Fuad's away traveling, and he'll be back in another week. Um, what we've done this week is re- reshare a podcast that Fuad and I did with Elise Comerford, our GAPS practitioner. Um, we recorded this a year or so ago, and we wanted to reshare it because the questions have come up again, and um, there's a lot of people wanting help with um, figuring out what to do about the MTHFR gene mutation, heavy metals, parasites, testing, all of these kind of things. And we were going to be talking about um, working through the layers of healing and when to do testing. Um, but we had so many questions in the chat groups about MTHFR that we thought we'll repost this one about MTHFR. This is the foundational one. You need to listen to this one first. And then we've also recorded one that takes it further and goes on to, um, you know, working through healing slowly and carefully and not rushing it, um, learning when to move on, when to get testing, all of that kind of thing. So that is in part two, which will be released next week. So Elise and I recorded that one yesterday. Um, so have a listen to this one first, if you haven't already, and then next week will be the follow-on from that. Um, just a note about today's podcast, Elise does talk about coffee enemas. This is something that you should have a chat with your practitioner about. Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride recommends them in her book, Gut and Psychology Syndrome, um, because they're very good for helping to detox and especially for people with MTHFR gene mutation. But if, you are, um, if you've never done it before, you need to just have a chat with your practitioner about it and see if it's right for you about our hundredth episode so stay tuned for that um, and I hope that you'll all you'll all hang around to, to listen because it's going to be a really good podcast I'm really excited and we do give you a, um, a hint of what's coming next week all right well you guys have an awesome week or weekend or wherever you are when you're listening to this podcast um, I'm off to get my Friday started and I'll see you soon. Bye. Hi everybody and welcome to A Quirky Journey. Today I have with me Fuad Kassab. Hi Fuad. Hi. Hello, hello. As usual. (laughs) And today we also have Elise who is Um, a good friend of ours in the gut health group and she's going to be speaking to us today about some things to do with gut health and I will let Fuad introduce her properly. Hi Elise. Hello. How are you going? Hello Elise, how are you doing? I'm really good and I'm so excited to be talking to you guys today. Oh we're excited. It's great to have you with us. Yeah. Yeah it's awesome. So Joe put up the question about uh, MTHFR and histamines on the Quirky Queen chat, chat group and the gut health group as well. And people have been asking all sorts of questions. So you've got a, a full episode ahead of you, yes. uh, to, you to, to walk us through <laughs> through some really technical stuff. And um, yeah, it's a big subject. 
Yeah, absolutely. We so we'd before just... we delve into the science too much, maybe we'll just um, have a chat a bit about who you are, how you came to um, talk about uh, things like health, gut health and uh, genes and histamines and uh, <laughs> your work and your practice and uh, give us a bit of background about yourself to start off with, Elise. Yeah. So um, basically, I've got a health science degree, so that's um, my qualification, and then I went on to do my GAPS practitioner training. But really, the journey with gut health started for me a long time before that. So I've had gut issues all my life, like a lot of, a lot of us have had. So I was cesarean born, I was bottle fed. I had ear aches and antibiotics when I was young, so um, constant ear infections. I had dark circles around my eyes, um, and my parents just thought that was we always they always said, "Oh, you just got thin skin under your eyes." Mine said um, that too. Mine said it was genetic. Yeah, they didn't. That's know. what I thought too. You know that has it. It's just thin skin under your eyes, and yeah. that's what I always thought. Um, so, and I was constantly at the doctor saying that I had pains in my tummy and then my parents just thought I was making it up because every time I went to the doctor, they'd be like, no, she's fine. So they just thought I was a hypochondriac. Um, and then, so as a teenager, my breasts were riddled with cysts. Um, at one stage I had an abscess in my breast that was so big, you could see it through my clothing. And the doctor had said he had never seen anything like that other than in the wow. breast. Wow. I had really terrible acne all over my back, my shoulders, my chest. That was all the way into my 20s. Mm. My periods were pretty painful. I'd miss a day or so of school here and there. Um, I went through some periods of pretty bad anxiety and depression and really abnormal eating behaviours, so kind of borderline starving myself. Mm. Um, And just that body dysmorphia, just not seeing myself exactly as I was. I look back at photos now and go, oh, my gosh, what was I even thinking? Mm. Um, so, and I suffered chronic sinus infections. Um, they used to get really, really bad and was always anemic, always had really low blood, blood pressure. One time I actually passed out at school just from standing in assembly for too long. Yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty embarrassing. Mm. And I just always went from constipation to diarrhea. So that to me was just normal. I think when I was about 16, I mentioned it to the doctor and my mum was like, what? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've always had that. I just thought I didn't really think anything of it. Uh, But that just kind of was just all starting to get worse as I was getting into my 20s. I was addicted to sugar and I was starting to get food intolerances and actually starting to recognise that I had food intolerances. They were just kind of getting worse and worse. So like... So many people, I thought these issues were all separate, that were, they were all normal and that it was just all something that I had to go on living with. Mm-hmm. And I think it was when I was in my early 20s and I went to live in Byron Bay and joined the bit of the hippie movement and started detoxing and started paying a bit more attention to health. And I was really trying everything. I tried vegan and vegetarian for a little while. I tried doing juicing. Uh, I tried going to the health food shop and getting this pack that was like three boxes. It was like start with this box, take that for a week, and then take this box for a week, and then this next box that was meant to make me all better, but it didn't. Hmm. So I was just really kind of trying everything. I knew that gut health was important, but I didn't quite understand how much, and I knew I was very, very interested in health and taking a natural approach. So I went and did my health science degree, and then through that I just started to become really interested in the gut 
And it was when I was actually pregnant with my son that I started to really research the gut and I'd always known it was important but just didn't realise how much until I really started getting into that, how my gut health was going to affect my son and how all my issues were connected to my gut health and the importance of the microbiome and I just became obsessed. So I just spent all my time reading all about it, learning all about it, started making broths. I was making like bone broths that I cooked for days on end I uh, was started fermenting. My first few batches were just so moldy. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. Um, just kind of doing anything I could and feeling pretty overwhelmed just trying to start doing anything. And it just kind of went from there. Um, I and you just started like getting lots of help from other mums and then really got into GAPS and that's when things really changed for me. So I started doing GAPS myself and somewhere through this as well I started working and seeing clients and was basically focusing mostly on gut health seeing such fabulous results but just not quite getting there. And so when I started learning more about GAPS and did my training was when I started to get the results with my clients and with myself as well. So, yeah, so throughout all that, I was pregnant and breastfeeding and so GAPS has been a really slow journey for me. And I stopped breastfeeding about five months ago and was able to do intro properly for myself and then properly for my son while he's not being breastfed by me and getting my kind of toxic die off. So I've seen some great changes in him as well since doing that. And so, yeah, and all the people I've worked with, I've just seen so many great results with GAPS. It's just quite mind-blowing. Big learning curve? Big, big learning curve. I learn learn more from my clients than they learn from me. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Because everybody's so different, so different. Yeah. What kind of results did you see, Elise? So I, my skin, and so I now have people say to me, what do you put on your skin? And I'm like, I don't put anything in it. It's what I put in my body. And I really take that one on board because my acne was so bad, like face, chest, back in my teenage years. That was horrible. I didn't want to go to the beach with my friends. So that, um, I don't have any of those issues that I listed before. Also, mental issues are a really big one in our family, so that kind of anxiety and depression. Mm. And one stage not long before I was pregnant with my son, probably a year or two before I was pregnant with my son, I actually thought I had bipolar. Wow. So, yeah, that I can see that, that stuff was only going to get worse. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't get cysts anymore. Um, I guess just feeling better than I ever have and I and as well just not feeling that bloat and discomfort all the time that I've just always felt in my gut and then of course not the constipation and diarrhea that I thought was normal and um, I didn't mention thrush but that was another lovely one for me as well candida has been a big issue so and that's hence the sugar craving and that kind of stuff as well so that's been a big one too not having the candida problems Mm. And what about with your son? What kind of change did you see there? So he's been a GAPS kid from the start. So he was introduced to food 
um, following GAPS protocol, his first foods were broth and egg yolks. Mm-hmm. So he's been pretty good, but he got my candida issues. Yeah. So I think even though I'd started to make some changes, of course, candida was still a problem and I was still having die-off. So he would get really gunky eyes. He still had cradle cap. Mm-hmm. Um and so for him, that cradle cap's only gone since I've done him, him when I stopped breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so that changed him. And even I just really can see how I was still detoxing in my milk for him because since we've stopped breastfeeding, I've done intro again, his colour's even better than it was and his eyes are even brighter than they were. Um, and he was, you know, he's always been a pretty healthy kid, so I'm pretty blessed. That's good. With that. Yeah. And, and that's that's all dietary intervention at least correct so like you didn't take any medication or anything like that it was just changing what you ate all changing what i ate there's been some supplementing so we've got there's some targeted supplementing but it's all been yeah basically food and the supplements are pretty much food based anyway fantastic yeah. yeah this is one of those things that we we like to get back to and talk to people about that um you know medication is good for uh, when you've got some kind of acute issue uh, rather than a chronic issue mm. and you take it just to be able to deal with the problem um that that's sort of uh, really grave and there's an emergency you, you reach out for that kind of medicine um but if you have a chronic issue you have to deal with the underlying root causes and uh, it seems that, um, you know, diet and nutrition, especially the, the kind of food that we talk about, uh, GAPS and paleo, it's, it's so beneficial to people. And um, it does, for a lot of people, it doesn't take more than that, it, like just changing what you eat and maybe tweaking some supplementation and you, you experience such amazing change, which is wonderful to hear that that's also the case with you and, uh, and your clients as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's, yeah, food, food is medicine. Mm. And when you think about it in terms of it's what goes into our body every meal, every day, it is the one thing that has the biggest impact on our health. Definitely. One thing that we often talk about in the gut health program in the group is, um, you know, there's a lot of people looking for specific help like there's a lot of things you can do with gaps on your own and get started but then when you start to hit these hard issues like mthfr and histamine reactions then suddenly it's like okay i need some extra help here and we often say you know it's a good idea to have a gaps practitioner that you can get an appointment with and just work through things with them and um we always say you need one that's been through gaps themselves because they understand so much more um and this is why we love we love you, Elise, because you're very practical and, and you do know what you're talking about. Um, and you've been very helpful in the program, in the group, um, answering questions. Um, so we really would love to pick your brains about the MTHFR gene because we've been getting a lot of questions about that. And um, one lady, especially you may have seen the other day, was saying um, she's done so much research. She hasn't started GAPS yet, but doing all the research has been um giving her anxiety because she's so overwhelmed and stressed and doesn't know what to do first. Um, So if you could maybe just start off with a little bit, like if someone came into the clinic um, and talked to you about the MTHFR gene, how would you actually explain it to someone who's very new to understanding it? Okay, so first of all, if someone walked in and even if I thought they had it, I would not bring it up. (laughs) Okay. 
I would never that? bring it up with a new client because it's the first thing people walk away and do is get on Dr. Google, um, Google it and freak themselves out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's not something that people need. Well, everyone will now anyway. But, and <laughs> but, yeah, you can really freak yourself out with it. But, yes, if someone wants to know what MTHFR is, so basically MTHFR stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene. So it's a gene and it's responsible for producing the MTHFR enzyme. So... And basically with enzymes, they need to be the right shape. It's like a key fitting a lock. An enzyme needs to be exactly the right shape to work properly. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a mutation in your MTHFR gene, then you are going to produce a mutated MTHFR enzyme and that enzyme is not going to function properly. So that enzyme metabolizes folate into the active form 5-MTHF. So in order to use folate in our body, so we can get folate obviously through supplements um, and through our food. So in order to convert that into something our body can actually use, we need that MTHFR enzyme to be working optimally. So basically the 5-MTHF then combines with homocysteine um, and then so it can be broken down and be used. So basically... Not basic, but basically um, MTHF, the methylfolate, is a part of a cycle. It's a part of our methyl, methylation cycle. So if we don't have the right component going into the cycle, it's going to affect every part of that cycle. So, you know, we don't then have something being donated to the next part of the cycle, which then needs to donate to the next part of the cycle. So it's just kind of upsetting the whole cycle. And the end result of that cycle is glutathione, which is very important uh, antioxidant in our body. Also mixed up in there amongst those cycles is the production of our neurotransmitters, um, methionine, which is very important for mood, um, mood, um, my brain's going blank, uh, (laughs) mood balancing. (laughs) Um, So just balancing out our mood. And, yeah, so I guess I know it's not basic, but that's kind of a basic kind of explanation of what we need that gene for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also is required to break down histamine because that histamine needs to be methylated. So that's the connection there between MTHFR and histamine. It also breaks down serotonin and dopamine. Um, Methylation can turn our DNA on and off. Mm. Um, It's important for cell repair. So methylation when something gets methylated a methyl group gets added to it so if we have a protein cell that's damaged we can like a methyl group can be donated to that to repair it so we need it for cell repair for cell production um, for regulating gene expression for sulfur metabolism for making the myelin sheathing, so that's like that layer of fat that's around all our nerve cells in our brain, so hence the connection with MTHFR and MS. Mm-hmm. Um, we need methyl, um, MTHFR, uh, so methylation plays a role in our immune function. Um, and then an important one, which a lot of people may know about MTHFR, is its relationship to high homocysteine levels. So we need that that enzyme to be working properly so our methylation pathway is working properly so we can convert homocysteine 
into methionine. So homocysteine in high levels causes atherosclerosis, whereas methionine is mood elevating. So we're needing to convert that homocysteine to methionine. So that's a big part of MTHFR is high homocysteine levels. Hmm. And that's kind of the one area where doctors are getting more onto it. If someone has heart disease, they'll often test for MTHFR gene mutations and test the homocysteine levels um, because that's related to heart disease. So, yeah, it's not an easy topic to put in a sentence. That sounds like it was a good explanation. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. You can ask the next question, Paul. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, <laughs> so obviously this is something that uh, it's been in our genetics for a long time, this kind of mutation. It's, it's not new. It's not like a 2016 thing, even though this the conversation has only recently started. So I would imagine that uh, MTHFR gene mutations uh, were just as normal back in the day as they are now. Yeah. Um, and testing is really what's bringing this to, to light. And um, so I'm, I'm just wondering with regards to now having identified this issue uh, and this particular gene mutation and, um, you know, the roadblock that it presents for the methylation cycle, uh, what kind of, um, what do people do? What do they do now rather than sort of freak out about the, genetic uh, misfortune like now that they know that they have it obviously they can do something uh, about it more efficiently than not knowing correct yes so one really important thing about it is I guess in my explanation that I really focused on what a mutation in the MTHFR gene can cause Mm -hmm. but in saying Mm -hmm. that it won't always so we have I'm sure everyone's heard of or may have heard of epigenetics. So that's basically we have the ability to turn our genes on and off. So just because somebody has that MTHFR gene mutation does not mean that it's causing a problem for them. So, And that is why when you say that it has been around for a long time, it has. It's been around for a really long time. But it's that we're now living lifestyles that do not support our methylation. Ah. So, you know, there may be a genetic susceptibility. Okay. But, you know, so we're saying that our lifestyle is controlling our gene expression in this case and MTHFR is expressing itself. Genes load the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. Right. That's a good okay. saying. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. I don't know who came up with that, but That's I good. stole it off some. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so basically... It's our lifestyle factors. If you're not living a lifestyle that supports methylation and then you have that genetic susceptibility, that is when you're going to meet problems. So that is why when people walk in, like I would never just across the board test for an MTHFR gene mutation because Mm. it doesn't mean anything. You've got to treat the person. So and basically we've only mapped 10% of the human genome. So we don't know what other gene mutations, like that's just two gene mutations. Like yeah, yeah. All the ones and they all interact. So it's always about the person. Mm. So I know that a lot of people find out they have these gene mutations or it's becoming really popular. So everyone goes and tests and then they want a, just a set out this. Okay. If you have this gene mutation, you do this. If you have this one, you do this. It does not work like that at all. Mm. Um, So basically it's all about treating the person. So I can't remember if I'm actually answering your question for (laughs) it. 
Um, well, p partially, yes, but, um, but I guess um, what you're saying here is instead of addressing the gene mutation itself, like you have to address lifestyle issues that cause the gene to express. That's yep. what, what you're saying. But um, so, so what are the lifestyle um, problems that we have in, in our daily lives now that cause something like MTHFR to, to come to express itself? So basically the, the things in our lifestyle that are not supporting our methylation are things like stress, uh, exposure to toxins, eating processed food, sugars, drinking alcohol, smoking, um, yeah, any of those good ones. So basically anything that's not kind of feeding into a healthy lifestyle is affecting our methylation. So basically, but the, like I'm guessing, if you're doing that kind of stuff anyway, whether you got MTHFR or not, you're gonna be sick pretty much. Like, you know, if you're not if you're not moving, you're eating poorly. Um, you know, you're not having enough sun exposure. You're not detoxing. Um, this this sounds like the building blocks of an unhealthy lifestyle to me. So, uh, so um, so that you, what we're saying here is that it causes extra problems with people who have MTHFR? Basically. So, you know, you'll see those people that do all that stuff and they might get by okay with just a few health issues and then okay. you see those people that do that stuff and they have they get cancer, they have autoimmune issues, uh, yeah. you know, uh, okay. issues they have heart attack, they have blood clots. Right. They, okay. they have fibromyalgia. So basically when someone tells you that story about their grandfather who <laughs> lived yeah. and he had smoked cigars every day, drank whiskey and ate pies, he didn't have an MTHFR gene mutation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's really, that, that's a really good thing to know then, I yeah. guess, um, you know, after you get over the overwhelm in your life about knowing whether you have it or not i've never i haven't tested myself joe have you tested no or? okay um yeah so i like i'm not interested in in testing because i, I don't no have reason. yeah there's, um but um maybe we'll talk about testing in a bit and how you do get tested for for mthfr but um so um tell, tell me how do you then approach your your clients when they come to you and uh, do they come having tested already, and they say, "I've got, I've got the gene, and I need to do something about it"? What's what's been your experience? So I get a bit of both, and I guess I work with a lot of people that already know about gaps. So a lot of my clients will already be working on gaps. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people have tested, sometimes they haven't. Generally, initially, I treat all my clients the same, unless they've already been put on supplements. I wouldn't take them off them. Um, yes. But I pretty much treat everybody the same. So always first addressing lifestyle factors. And um, a lot of the information that I know about MTHFR, I've gotten from the wonderful Dr. Ben Lynch. He's like the know-it-all of MTHFR. He's amazing. So um, and basically that's what he says as well. There's so many steps before directly trying to treat anything to do with BG mutation. So you need to change your diet, you need to change the lifestyle factors, you need to reduce stress, you need to get out and be moving more, you need to stop smoking, drinking. And I guess we're talking to a crowd that have probably done all that anyway. Um, so, and doing something like GAPS, because 
there's the MTH, there's the gene mutation, but then there's other issues too. And although there will be some kind of connection, you know, that is MTHFR isn't the only thing going on. So I would really want a client to do gaps. And then, yeah, like so typically if someone is uh, living a westernized lifestyle with uh, industrialized food and like highly processed refined sugars and flowers and things like that, then probably they have things like dysbiosis or some kind of, um, you know, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or something like that as well, which is... Um, Besides the the, gen, the genes as well, like they'll be they'll actually be facing gut issues, regardless whether the gene is there or not. Yeah, and so people will like go and test for the gene and go, oh, I just need methyls, and take the methyls, and then not see any results because then they're still living this lifestyle that's not mm. supporting the patient. So that's why, yeah, there's all there's steps before you even get there, and that is and that is kind of changing the diet and dealing with those issues. And some people will have the gene mutation, they'll do gaps and they'll see the results that they need and there'll be no need to treat the mutation. So that's why we'll always do that with people first and then you wait to see a need to do yeah. something with the mutation. This is what can, Dr. Can Natasha I, says, isn't it? Well, what what do you do? Like, if you do have the gene and you're dealing with the symptoms and, like, not the symptoms, uh, what I mean is you're having health issues and you're starting to resolve them through lifestyle and all that kind of stuff, maybe you still have this kind of underlying concern in the back of your head that still says, hey, you know, like, this thing might make me more prone to autoimmune, more prone to cancer and things like that just because I have the gene. So do they actually seek kind of genetic medication like what and what options are there for something like that so basically you would need to test your methylation and just and basically having the gene mutation you would need the lifestyle factors to then bring on those issues so that's where the lifestyle factors are so important as a part of that because having the mutation means you won't deal with those lifestyle factors like another person would. So dealing with the lifestyle factors is very often enough. And so that's why I really like to stress that to people that deal with the lifestyle factors, because that can be enough. You can get active folate from your food, from liver, from leafy greens, from raw egg yolks. So you can that can be enough for people. And just dealing with the lifestyle factors can turn off that gene and then if people are concerned and especially I would say work with a practitioner um, then you do blood tests so basically if I was working with a client and we were everything was going well but there was some issues that we just weren't getting past and then I would start to I would already probably have an idea in my head that I do think that they have the gene mutation and if say if they're still got really dark circles under their eyes and it's really obvious with everything that, that we do that their liver is just not coping then I would want to test for the gene mutation so you can do that um, via a buccal swab, which is just cheek cells. So it's just like a cotton bud. Yeah, that you a swab, yeah. Um, and, or you can do blood spot, which is just pricking your finger with a lancet and just dripping it onto a cardboard with um, like a blood spot on a piece of cardboard. Um, so that's the way you can test for the gene mutation. And then you would actually need to do blood tests to test your methylation cycle. Which is some like genes. There's there. Um, you only need to test for it once, 
But yeah. your methylation cycle, that's where we start seeing the change from being unhealthy to being healthy. We start seeing an improvement in the methylation cycle. Is that what we'd expect? Exactly right. So okay. things you'd want to test are like glutathione, both oxidized and reduced. Um, the esidanozole methanine, red blood cell, esidanozole homocysteine, red blood cell as well. Tetrahydrofolate, 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, um, folinic acid, red cell folate, homocysteine, histamine, and then also the SAMSAR ratio. So just in case people listening, they want to write those down. But, yeah, um, <laughs> so they're the kind of things that you'd want to test um, to see basically what's happening in, happening in the methylation cycle. And no one should be treating a gene mutation without looking at the methylation cycle. Basically, that's all, that's where it's at, is looking at, actually looking at your methylation cycle and seeing what's happening and what needs to be done. So by testing those parts of the methylation cycle, if something's low, um, then you can then tell that. Are these the tests like part of a suite, for instance, where like you can just go, oh, like, I want to test my methylation and your doctor yeah. will know what to test for? Um Hard to say if a doctor would, it depends what doctor you to. Uh, a naturopath, you okay. would be able to. Most of them use naturopath, a lot of them use naturopath for their testing. So, naturopath is a lab that do testing. So, they have a methylation pathways test, and you can just have options to add a few of those others in, like the glutathione isn't automatically in there, um, and neither is the red blood cell folate, I don't think. What's so, the approximate cost of a test like that? About 230, 280. Oh, okay. So it's, it's not, not too bad. It's, it's yeah. something, yeah, okay, fantastic. So, and it's, yeah. yeah, like it's good to, I guess, test the gene mutation, but that testing, doing the bloods is more important because that's when you actually see what's going on. And if, say, like your homocysteine's higher, then you know that you don't have folic acid converting, sorry, folate converting to 5-MTHF because it uses up homocysteine, like the 5-MTHF uses homocysteine to be broken down into methanine. So, yeah, so by, basically by testing those things, you can then see what's missing from the pathways mm. and so see how, get an idea of where the pathway is broken in the methylation cycle. Very, yeah, very cool. Very, and then through the lifestyle interventions, we start removing... Um, like turning off the gene expression and then we start to see improvements in methylation. Yeah, and just every like every one of those lifestyle factors can affect nearly every part of that methylation cycle. So there's always mm -hmm. more going on than just the gene mutation. And mm -hmm. that's why the lifestyle factors is so important. I've seen um, oh. so many people in the like in doing gaps and in the program and stuff that have questions about this and have a lot of trouble detoxing um, because it just they've got to do everything super slow. Is that right? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, yeah, people with MTHFR do need to detox super slow. Um, and anything you can do to sweat is just absolutely priceless for oh. someone who's detoxed well. I should just well. come live in Fardles, Queensland then. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do want that if people go better with like mutations and stuff up there because they sweat more. Um, <laughs> Who knows? So going to like Bikram yoga or going to a sauna and sweating and, oh, my goodness, you just feel so much better. Also, I forgot to add, I'm actually an MTHFR mutant oh. as well. Somewhere in all that I discovered I had two of the mutations. Um, yeah. Oh, that's that should be in, in the next X-Men. They'll put, uh, put you in there and then like, oh, well, what's your superpower? I can't methylate. I'm sorry. Ocean swimming is another good one I've heard. Yes, ocean swimming, getting out in the sunshine, mm-hmm. coffee mm-hmm. enemas. Someone labeled the group as the enema queen. I thought yeah. that was such a Oh, that's my superpower. She's amazing. <laughs> uh, we have to explain this for those who are not in the gut health program. Elise did it. I'm scared to say video because they'll think the wrong thing. But she <laughs> she talked about enemas on a video, and it's like probably the most searched thing in the group because everyone's always going, "Just watch that video by Elise." Very, it's very good. <laughs> yeah. So what I find with a lot of my clients. If they're all like, oh, I'm not constipated, I don't need to do animas, I'm like, that is not the primary reason to do an enema. So animas are just so priceless when it comes to detoxing, especially coffee animas. So people with MTHFR gene mutation should do lots of coffee animas and they'll feel great. Amazing. Amazing. So what what equipment does one need for that? Is it like do you just get any kind of um, enema kit from the chemist and then? Um, so not from the, yeah, not from the chemist. So they you can get them from the Gaps Australia website. I stock them now also, and so does Kiss. So she's the enema queen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I better start stocking them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, and Kitsar does, or Emporia Organico. So you want to get an anima kit that's a stainless steel bucket with silicon hose and attachments. And basically it's so simple and it is just totally not a big deal. When I first got mine because I did the GAPS training and then I was like, well, I have to do an anima because I'm going to tell people to do an anima and so I need to do one. And I think it's starting my cupboard for a couple of months and then I was like, I'm just going to do this. And I did it and it was fine. And I was like, that's really not a big deal. So basically, yeah, it's just boiling water, fill it up, and fill you up. But not with the boiling water, surely. <laughs> no, not with the boiling water. Let it down first. Do you need like Arabica, Robusta? Do you want single origin coffee? What's the, <laughs> what are we going for? Single origin would be great. <laughs> oh, like hints of caramel. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because these poor gas people who can't drink it, they have the torture of smelling it and it's going in the other end. Poor things. I wonder whether you absorb the caffeine (laughs) through that as well and you just get all hyper. Yeah, you do, but not so much because it's not going through your stomach. It doesn't quite have the same effect. It does give you a buzz, but it's not the same. All right. right. And um, would you use organic coffee or is like normal, good quality? Organic. Yeah, definitely organic. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, and so basically yeah. the coffee goes up and hits the liver and gets it working double time. Wow. So it just helps it really detox and stuff. So it's really, really good for your liver, really supportive. I think I'm going to so, do it. I'm, I'm, do it. I'm thinking, yeah, I will. Unreal, unreal. And if you're going to, like you're putting so much effort into detoxing through everything you're doing, 
in other ways. And doing an anima detoxes, you know, it just helps you detox the colon so quickly okay. and so effectively. I think anyone doing gaps, they're kind of short, short, like short pulling themselves if they don't do it. It's mm. just such a way to detox even more. And so then, of course, people with NTHFR, they also need to be doing lots of detox baths. Okay. okay. So the Epsom salt baths daily and that kind of thing. So and eating yeah. with and eating egg yolks. Mm-hmm. And eating egg yolks. Is that what you yeah. said? Sorry. Yeah. What, why? So they contain active folate and they're really supportive for the liver. So egg yolks and liver both contain active folate and really supportive for the liver. So people, like you, everyone really should be eating a palm size worth of liver a day. Oh, wow. Yeah, especially people that have methylation issues. I really must start mincing the liver and putting mm-hmm. it into things. That's good. good way to hide it for, from kids. Yes, and if you get if you have a good butcher that makes sausages like gap sausages for you, get them to put it through the sausages or through the mince. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, so at least 20% kind of liver and then you'll get a good amount. Okay. So um, I thought I'd just add as well because um, I think a lot of people always have questions what issues relate to MTHFR and then what the actual gene mutations are and how they get passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the main issues are like autism, addictions, miscarriages, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, stroke, bipolar, blood clots, heart issues, diabetes, epilepsy, um, multiple sclerosis, tongue tie is a really big one, and asthma. Um, And so basically there's like the two gene mutations. There's the C667T gene and then the A1298C. And so that the C677T, that's more related to heart disease and heart issues. And then the and stroke, and then the A1298C is more related to like kind of chronic stuff and autoimmune. Mm. And so, like with each gene, you've got two copies of every single gene. So you can have one copy mutated, or you could have both copies mutated of each gene. And so the way that would work is, say, for example, I have one copy mutated of each of those genes and one copy is normal and so I've had both my parents get tested as well so I got so for the C667T gene you get one gene you get one copy from each of your parents so I got a mutated copy from my dad and I got a normal copy from my mum and then when the other one the A1298C I got a normal copy from my dad and a mutated copy from my mum so basically, just because you have a mutation, if it's just in a, if it's just one copy of your gene, you might not pass it on to your children. So you might pass on your good copy. So that's called a heterozygous mutation if you've just got one copy. And then if you've got homozygous, which means both copies are mutated, you will definitely pass your one copy on to your child, and then it will just depend what they get off the other parent. So it's just that sort of they kind of get passed down is just one copy from each parent. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, with with regards to like the copies that you pass on to your children and whether your husband has it or you've got it and the children have it, uh, again, this is not something that you can control. Like if you if you've got it, 
and you're you have uh, you have a homozygous, is that correct? Then your child will have it. Yeah. So if you're yeah. homozygous and you've got two copies, that means that yeah. you'll definitely pass one yeah. copy. So definitely, they manage, yeah. yeah. So and then it just depends what the the other parent has as to whether if they don't have any mutations, then they'll get a normal copy. Right. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of confusing with all the passing on. Yeah. All the yeah. yeah. Basically, right. just get the whole family to um, make the lifestyle changes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't let it stop you from having children no. or anything like no, that. No, yeah. no, no, no. And that's the whole thing with like when in the end it is like everyone should be making the lifestyle changes anyway, regardless. Well, I have to mention we were at the Mind Forum in May. And a friend of mine was sitting next to me and, you know, it was speaker after speaker talking about these kinds of things and it just got so overwhelming for her. She was just like, but what if I've got this and what do I do about that? And I said, wait, just think for a minute. What has every single one of the speakers said at the end of their talk, whether it was about water or genes or um, whatever it was, they all came back to the lifestyle changes and they were all the same. So it all comes yeah. back to that, you know, the diet, the getting rid of toxins, reducing stress, getting out in nature, getting more sleep, it, your water, it all comes back to that. And, and you know, there may be some tweaking you have to do with supplements or something, but it starts with the lifestyle. So I think when people get overwhelmed, you just got to keep coming back to that, don't you? I suppose you find that with your clients. Exactly. And it's always treating the person, not the gene mutation. That's yeah. a huge one that always reminding my clients like it's always looking at what issues are going on because they might not be directly because of the gene mutation like mm. it's always just seeing the person yeah and not the mutation yeah can you t- talk a little bit about histamine intolerance because it is related and a lot of people talk about doing gaps and having trouble with histamines um how do you approach that in your clinic so basically it is very related to MTHFR because we're, with that mutation you may not be able to reduce histamine properly. Mm-hmm. But it can also mm-hmm. be, it's very, histamine intolerance is really, really common. And it doesn't need, there doesn't need to be a gene mutation present. So there could be a mutation in a different gene which produces an enzyme called DAO or diamine oxidase that breaks down histamine. So there's different things that can be going on and it can just be gut damage where your gut's not able to produce DAO because there's damage to the gut. So there's like all different things that can be causing the histamine intolerance. Mm. Um, But basically, so if you think of histamines, uh, so if you think kind of like a DAO, so DAO is that diamine oxidase, that's what breaks down histamine. So if you think of that as a bucket and basically it can only handle a certain amount of histamine. Mm and only break down a certain amount of histamine at a time. So when there's too much histamine present, it overflows. Yeah. And histamine basically, when we have a, when that histamine overflows, we have a histamine response, which is an immune response that causes inflammation in our body. So the kind of symptoms of histamine response are pain, fever, runny nose, watery eyes, hives, uh, over kind of concentration huh? because histamine kind of affects the vasodilation in our brain so we can start kind of over-focusing. So if you, 
you know, pick up your phone and get on Facebook and you can't stop. Like you can't get your face away from that screen. It's that really over-focused. If you start doing something, you can't pull yourself away from it. Hmm. Just really get really too focused in something. So that's a histamine thing. And it also, histamine also affects our gut motility, so our bowels. Hmm. Wow. So one with high histamine might actually go to the toilet too often. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the things that histamine does in our body. So, yeah, when we've got too much of it, we can become itchy, mm. we can get high, um, we can, it affects our sleep. So because it's making us over-focused, it can make it hard to go to sleep. It can make you really feel tired and groggy when you wake up in the morning. It can give you headaches. So they're the kind of things we can have going on from too much histamine in our body. Mm. So, and the way we get too much histamine is if we've got mutations that are affecting the breakdown of it, if we've got gun issue that's affecting the production of our DAO, and also if you've got SIBO or like just overgrowth of any kind of bacteria, bad bacteria, they actually can produce histamine as well. Mm. So you could have a combination of like bacteria, mm. histamine, and gut damage, so you're not producing enough DAO, and also you've got a mutation that's affecting your production of that DAO anyway and the reduction of histamine. So there could be like multifaceted things going on that means that you can't tolerate much histamine. Mm. And so a lot of people kind of find out that they're histamine intolerant, so they're like, all right, I've got to cut out stock, I've got to cut out anything long-cooked, so I've got to go low-protein, I've got to cut out all fermented foods and cut out everything histamine. And then you're kind of left in a position where you're going to go nowhere. Yeah. You've, you're kind of stuck on this low histamine diet, which is really, really boring. And it's not so, Sorry, just so I can clarify one thing. So the DAO, that's yep. an enzyme? Yeah, so diamine oxidase, that's an enzyme that breaks okay. down histamine. Okay. And, and when you say it's a bucket, um, you're sort of comparing that. Like there's a certain amount of it and it'll be able to break down the, the histamine if it's there. But if there's too much histamine and not enough DAO, then we'll experience histamine reaction, like an inflammation. Yeah, so they'll just be okay. histamine so, and that inflammation reaction. So the, is, is the usual cause in people not enough DAO or too much histamine? What's the, what's the usual so, well, it's really hard to say usual because you often don't know. Okay. When you're treating someone with a histamine intolerance, I don't know. Yeah, I don't like sometimes I'll know if they have a gene mutation, but mm-hmm. you won't always know if it's, you know, too little DAO or too much histamine. And it's often a combination because there'll often be gut damage where the DAO is not being produced properly and there'll be overgrowth of bad bacteria. They kind of go hand in hand. So it's so, like this patch yeah of like because there's gut damage, the DAO production will be lowered and because there's gut damage, there'll be a more of a production of bad bacteria and that will be producing histamine. So it kind of goes wow. against wow. that. Mm. Yeah, all right. So so they sort of um, – it's a, it's a vicious cycle as well yeah. in a sense where like you're not producing enough DAO because the gut's poor and then because the gut's poor, you're making more histamine. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the more reason to look after the gut health. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. then I have a lot of people asking, like, well, what do you do then if you have histamine intolerance, and then so you don't tolerate the foods that you need to heal your gut? Mm. But it's, that's what so I get asked all the time. Yeah. So 
the thing is you actually need to heal your gut to be able to tolerate histamines. Mm-hmm. So I so the process I generally go through with my clients is of course getting them on gaps mm-hmm. and having them do gaps in a low histamine way. So that's basically just short short cooked meat stocks. So meat stocks, bone in, um, so using cuts like lamb shanks, uh chicken drumsticks, chicken wings, so with meat no more than an inch from the bone mm-hmm. and joints and cartilage and connective tissue and doing them chicken two to three to kind of four hours pretty much until it's cooked and same with lamb and beef about four to six hours till it's cooked and then putting it into jars straight away, sticking it in a sink, in a sink of cold water to cool it down quickly I even like empty the cold water out of the sink and then fill it up again yep. and then freeze it straight away. So it's basically just trying to shorten that process because histamines in food increases protein ages. So as you, if you cook your stocks longer, if you leave them sitting in the fridge overnight, then they're going to increase in histamine. So you just want to keep everything really low histamine. So, so do you need really fresh meat? Yeah, so really fresh. So Generally, pork is the least tolerated because it's something to do with when pork's processed, it hangs the longest or something, mm. something that was processed. So pork is generally the highest in histamine. And, so, and then lamb, when it's processed, it's usually the freshest meat that you buy. It's processing mm. is really quick. And so lamb is most often well tolerated by people with histamine intolerance. And so the, to, just to clarify to our listeners, um, this process that you're talking about, like cooling it down quickly and sort of making sure that it's as low histamine as possible, this is necessary for people with histamine issues. So if, if you have gut issues, it doesn't always mean that you have a histamine intolerance. And you should, if you, if you don't have it, you can tolerate longer cooked broths or broths that have sort of been cooled down normally at room temperature. Um, so in general, when I work with my clients, I mostly get people to treat themselves like they have a histamine intolerance okay. initially because it is so common and especially yes. especially with people with gut issues, I've rarely come across someone that okay. doesn't have a histamine intolerance. So to some extent, most people usually do, um, but definitely not always. And so I just, as a rule, get people always to do short cook stocks and to try and do their best at freezing. And then as they go along, they can kind of experiment with doing things longer and leaving things and just kind of seeing where they're at with their histamine tolerance. Okay. And, yeah, basically because when you get to the point of not tolerating the histamines, it's usually one to two weeks in. Some people it's straight away. They won't tolerate it right off the bat. But because histamines are cumulative, mm. it can be one to two in and then it's really not nice. Yeah. So I really like to kind of avoid people getting to that point. Yeah, because then they want to give up. They say gaps doesn't work. It makes me sicker. <laughs> and that's, I think, because I hear a lot of the gaps that didn't work for me kind of yeah. stories. And most of the time they haven't worked with a practitioner or worked with a practitioner hasn't done it themselves and kind of strays from so gaps, yeah. Jump in full blast and do all the detoxing things awesome. and it all crashes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, at least we, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. I'm, she I'm is, loving isn't this she? podcast. Well, that's fantastic. She's <laughs> amazing. I told you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have some questions for you from readers. Can I ask you a few because we're getting... Close to an hour now. All right. <laughs> right. Um, 
So there is someone who wants to know about she suffers from adrenal fatigue and, and at the moment she has kombucha, fermented veggies, bone broth, but she's worried about them being appropriate. Can you, for her his, high histamine levels, sorry, um, can you comment on any of that? So, so basically, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, you, you heard yep. Yeah, you got them all. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it's like that catch-22 thing, the food you need to heal your histamine intolerance will cause a histamine response. Mm. So you really mm. just need to be going the right way about it and it's like prioritising your histamines. So cut out every histamine that's not helping you. So basically cook everything short-cooked, don't eat leftovers, don't eat avocado or tomato or strawberries, which are all high histamine, don't eat apple cider vinegar, um, which is high histamine as well, or citrus fruit. So cut out the things that don't matter. Mm. Um, Mm. And also with histamine, you need to... um, be breathing properly. So there's things that can affect your histamine just like stuff that you're doing. So if you breathe, do yoga, um, aren't stressed, like just stuff like that alone can also reduce your histamine. So when it comes to histamine challenge, I'd always eliminate every factor that you can and leave in the stuff that's going to help. Mm. So leave in the stocks, leave in the sauerkraut. I'd Get rid of the kombucha mm. because it has a sugar content. It's always going to have a sugar content. It's not my high priority when it comes to fermented foods. So I'd be doing the sauerkraut, the the stocks, the probiotics, of course, gaps. If you can do gaps, that's really where it's at. But, mm. yeah, so it's basically get rid of all the stuff that's high histamine that doesn't really matter and keep in the stuff that's going to help. That's good. <laughs> Um, like a lot when I work with my clients, they'll still be having some kind of histamine response and you just really need to keep it at a manageable level. Yeah. So, so when they first, sorry. Okay. When they first start, um, would you bring in each food that really pushes detox quite slowly and maybe one at a time instead of, you know, like, um, the, the broth and the, um, I don't know, coconut oil and things like that. Sometimes people bring those things in quite quickly with the fermented foods and stuff and then suddenly they've got this giant big detox happening or histamine reactions. Um, I know Mary's talked about starting people on broth one drop at a time like she did with her boy. Um, sauerkraut juice one drop at a time. People don't realise how slow you sometimes need to go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've got clients at the moment that are doing the drop at a time with the sauerkraut and mm. yeah so you do need to go really slowly with stuff and basically <laughs> and not everyone get, does but some people do yeah, yeah exactly not yeah. everyone does but and it's like until you get to the point where you can really do gaps properly mm. You're not going to resolve really. Well, it's hard to say you're definitely not going to because I'm sure some people would, but it will be harder to resolve that histamine issue so that you can have histamines in your diet. Mm. So healing the gut properly is really what's going to help you then tolerate histamines. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and bringing that stuff in slowly and because a lot of people, you know, bone broths have been really popular, so people are jumping in with, bone broth and then they're really they're high histamine and high other amines and high salicylates and yeah. and then there's so many people that don't tolerate that stuff but they're just jumping in with what they think 
is best. Yeah. Would you um, give uh, someone like that, like uh, gelatin, or would you stay away from gelatin and keep keep with the bomber? Stay away from gelatin because it's also made from something long cooked. Okay. So that is like having bone broth. So I generally, as a rule, because I treat people, everyone high histamine, just to, I just find I get better results that way, not mm-hmm. instigating histamine responses in people. Um, I keep everyone off gelatin initially as well. Mm. And, and um, maybe it's worth saying when someone's taking, like, say, a fermented veg and bone broth, that my view has always been. Um, to look after the um, the frequency more than the quantity. So make, make sure that, um, like, you're having sauerkraut more often, but you don't have to have huge amounts of it with every go. Like, it just takes small amounts. Would you do that as well with someone on, on caps or gut healing? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely the best way for your body to cope with it, for sure. Right. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess basically the answer to the question was that you need to have those things to start resolving the gut issues and the intolerance. So it's really just trying to keep the histamine intolerance at a manageable level. Mm. Getting enough sleep and not being stressed and that's, that stuff's really important. Someone also asked what's the best supplements for histamine reactions or histamine issues aside from quercetin? I don't quercetin. know. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so you can also take methionine, but then again, I'm not too... Like, I wouldn't just broadly recommend that either because you have certain methylation issues, that wouldn't be a good thing. Yeah. So really don't know what's going on. There's can't really give a blanket recommendation. Yeah. You've got to go see but, your practitioner, really. Um, yeah, so it really is about doing, once again, all the lifestyle factors first. So mm-hmm. reducing stress, mm-hmm. getting enough sleep, um, doing some exercise, doing yoga, breathing properly, that all will have a big effect. And bigger than you'll get from taking something. Mm. So that mm-hmm. and then reducing the histamines in the diet. So really that should be enough. I haven't really seen anyone need to do more than that. Mm. There's a lot of questions here. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them are similar. So it's not, um, they're, they're not too dissimilar in the way that they're asking questions. But, um, you guys pick somehow. Um, I don't know what to this choose. One, is there any interaction with iron, including high saturation levels driven by hemochromatosis gene mutation? Because that's sort of off, off the MTHFR topic. But um, there, there was a few questions about iron and folate and things like that. Um, I think at least you had seen one before that you wanted to address as well. Yeah, basically, um, I can't see the question now. But there's not been really any connection drawn between MTHFR and iron enough to really talk about. So I know that some people talk about it. I've seen it spoken about in blogs, but there's no science to back it up. So, yeah, so there's not really – some people say that it's connected with high iron and then some people low. But as, you know, there can be other gene mutations going on, such as hemochromatosis, which means that you end up with too much iron. Um, but, yeah, I don't really know much about any connection between that and MTHFR. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think there was a question, uh, what about – this scenario tested negative to MTHFR and homocysteine by having histamine issues, the kids more so. Is it worth getting them tested? Do you handle histamines any different? 
So if she's negative for MTHFR, then she will not have passed any mutation on to her children. So it would just depend whether or not her partner, the children's father, is has a gene mutation or not as to whether they did. So, um, but as I was saying before, it's not just a gene mutation that would result in a histamine intolerance. So it can be from, it could be a DAO um, gene mutation it could be gut damage, it could be overgrowth of bacteria that's producing histamine. So there's other reasons that there's histamine intolerances, not just the mutation. So, yeah, they could, they've got histamine intolerance and there's definitely something going on, but I'd be addressing those lifestyle factors and the dietary factors. Okay. Well, do you want another question? Yeah, um, there's so many here. I really, maybe at least, have you got them in front of you or not? Um, I've got some because I think there's a few different. um, Yeah, there's quite a lot. Um, Questions. Okay, a lot of them have been covered, I think, but some of them I'm not really sure of. Uh, Let's see. One person asked about the best diet to follow. I think that's been. Clarified, and I think um, when when you were saying before, Joe, how everything always comes back to lifestyle. Well, Mm. every wormhole I go down with everything I'm researching and looking at, it always comes back that somehow in gaps it's covered. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Somehow, where you know it's answering nearly everything, and that's why. As much as it drives people crazy, Dr. Natasha does not talk about MTHFR. I just can't ah, find her okay. in it. And that's because she doesn't, like, I think she's just once said, oh, if you take the methyls and they help, keep taking them. But that's her only comment on MTHFR. Well, I know she just generally says don't go crazy with testing at the start, doesn't she? She says just work on the lifestyle and the diet and then... If you still want to get testing later, you can, but it's going to be a lot less needed. Yeah, exactly, and that's what it always comes back to. You can just, it's so easy to get caught up in testing. Mm. What about, um, someone asked what's, um, if you could give a bit of an overview of relationship between the MTHFR gene mutation and pyroluria. Have you heard Once of anything again, to do with that? Yes, they do correlate, but there's no real known connection okay. between the two. Um, but when you have, like, basically when you have pyroluria, you can have low zinc, high copper, mm. um, which can kind of, yeah, so it can feed into the MTHFR issues as well, but mm. it's not really like the two a cause, Elite. like there's a connection. Between the causes, yeah. And is there a connection with chronic sinus issues and any other inflammation-related conditions like lymphedema? Absolutely. So there's connections basically with any chronic conditions Mm. and chronic sinus conditions can be really related to histamine as well. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, that's more so the A1298C gene mutation that's usually related to the chronic conditions. Okay. Um, and you already mentioned about, a, uh, did you mention ASD, ADHD being a sign of genetic mutations? Yeah, so yeah. I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but, yeah, it definitely is a sign as well. Yeah, autism, yeah, I did And did you want to say anything about fish because a couple of people have mentioned fish with history? So, sorry. 
really fresh fish is low histamine. So if you can get really fresh wild caught fish, that's good. Yeah. Okay. I can. Woohoo. Fat of Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's frozen. That's what you, you Yeah, you but they, they freeze it as soon as they catch it, like it's frozen oh. on the boat. That's good. Oh. Uh, uh, I love this question. Is, Is that there okay? Any between people with the MTHFR mutation being attracted to others with MTHFR as in relation. Love that. that one too. I, I've actually, I don't know. I wish someone would research it if there is actually a significant. <laughs> <laughs> they do your thesis on it. <laughs> yeah, all my clients, both both parents always have a mutation. Wow. So that if people can like smell it on each other or something. <laughs> Does it just make you? And nice how common is this mutation? Like one, like in every what is MTHFR mutated? Oh, I don't actually know how common it is, but it is it is fairly common. But I don't know if I don't know that there would be a percentage out there because it's so untested. Mm. Yeah. So there would be any reliable statistics to know, and whatever the statistics were, it'd probably be more than that that actually have the mutation. <laughs> Wow, okay. Just a quick practical one for people that do um, have the MTHFR gene. One lady said she does have terrible histamine issues and she's always taking antihistamines. Um, do you have anything to say about, you know, like I know my doctor has told my husband that it's fine to take antihistamines every day for the rest of your life. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, well, I don't know. I, yeah, no, I don't really agree with taking antihistamines every day for the rest of your life mm. um, because really there's other factors going on that are affecting your health because you've got those lifestyle factors in place that are causing histamine responses. Mm. So those like on it. Yeah, pretty much. Like those lifestyle factors are still going to be affecting you anyway. Mm-hmm. So I would say, like, you know, there's going to be gut issues. Yeah. And taking your histamine, yeah, once again, is a Band-Aid. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's only just blocking receptors for histamine. So it's not actually fixing anything. So there's going to be still overgrowth of bacteria there's not going to be you know there's damage there's something going on not getting fixed and that's causing other problems it means just you know it's just one expression of that issue I know from myself when I went on a low-carb paleo diet, um, I used to live with chronic histamine issues and I was taking Zyrtec every day for pretty much all my life, 30 years or like, you know, adult life, so 15 or so years. And uh, when I stopped um, eating the processed foods and went on like a a whole food diet, my um, histamine issues we're like 95% better mm, and uh, yeah I, I don't have to take antihistamines it's been years now and it's just wonderful so yeah and if you haven't gone down that path of eating a whole foods diet and focusing on um, gut healthy food um, yeah you're missing out that's the first step yeah exactly. I, I do know my like you asked before Fuad if I'd been tested for the gene mutation I haven't but Simeon has my 17 year old and he's always had terrible histamine issues, but he doesn't have the genetic mutation. So, mm-hmm. um, and his gut health is really good now. That's all been checked. So his his histamine issues are a lot better, but um, with gaps now. But I think he's still got some work to do. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas on that at all? 
have you had him tested for a mutation in the gene that produces DAO? Um, I'm not sure. It, he did like a whole genetic testing thing with Igor, Dr. Igor. Yeah. I'm not sure which ones were tested, but I know he doesn't yeah. have MTHFR. That's all I know. <laughs> so maybe you could share the results with Elise and she can have a look yeah. for you. Tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it'd be cool to sort of give an update next time when we start the next podcast. We can just mm. say whatever you found out and uh, tie yeah. it back in. Because it's quite interesting how many factors there are, isn't there? Yeah, it is. And that's why each person stands alone. Yeah, <laughs> got to always treat the person. And that's yeah. in our GAPS training, Dr. Natasha was really big on that. She's like, don't do all the testing, just treat the person. Mm. Like, look at person in front of you and what's going on with them and that's yeah that's really important and that's why what I was saying before if I even suspect a mutation in someone I don't mention it straight off the bat yeah yeah that's good well I think we should wrap it up shouldn't we we've been going for an hour thank you so much for your time Elise we really appreciate it no thanks for having me on I really appreciate it it's very exciting oh we've learned awesome haven't we (laughs) yeah it's been amazing thanks Elise now you'll probably get a zillion more questions where can people find you um so they can find me at elisecummerford.com okay and I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Elise help okay and that's it for me in social media I don't really get on any you're a smart lady (laughs) Well, I'll put the links on the um, show notes as well on the wellness couch so that people can click through. Um, And you'll also find her in the gut health program group where she's often answering questions just because she's such a lovely person. (laughs) So thank you so much for that, Elise. We really appreciate it. The gut health program, for those of you who don't know, is our online program for gut health which you can find at gaps.quirkycooking.com.au which uh, is a companion to a gut health diet uh, Joe designed it around um, the uh, the intro stages of gaps and uh, there's also the full gaps uh, section coming soon as well but it's sort of uh, a companion for you throughout your journey to be able to help you know what to cook and what foods are allowed in different uh, phases and uh, so it's, it's great place and when you sign up there you'll be able to get access to the gut health programs uh, facebook group where elise is quite active so yeah you'll see it thank you for it to all my clients because it just makes it so much easier oh that's good thank you (laughs) all right well we'll talk to you again i'm sure great thanks guys thanks so much Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back in a fortnight. Bye. Bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.